I'm Jeff Gordon, president of the American Birding Association and executive producer of this podcast. Not only is the American Birding Podcast celebrating its second birthday, the ABA itself is turning 50 in 2019. It's just amazing how time goes by, isn't it? Nate, John, Greg, David, and I, and all the staff at the ABA deeply appreciate your support, which allows us to do what we love, bring you great things that birders enjoy and find useful and inspiring. As a 501c3 nonprofit, donations large and small are absolutely critical to the ABA's survival and make all the difference in what we are able to do and provide to you and the birding community. You can help by making a tax-deductible donation at aba.org give. And if you want to call on the phone, that's fine too. Give us a ring at 800-850-2473. Thanks for listening. And even more, thanks for doing what you are able to help us keep working towards our mission to inspire all people to enjoy and protect wild birds. Hello and welcome to the American Birding Podcast from the American Birding Association. I'm your host, Nate Swick, and you know, well, this is the last episode of 2018, so I'm going to keep this part of the episode pretty brief, except to reiterate first what Jeff Gordon mentioned at the top of the episode in that we are in the midst of our annual year-end appeal and that any donation you can make to help support the ABA and our mission is much appreciated. And more, you know, if you enjoy this podcast and you've been considering joining the ABA. I know you folks are out there. We offer an e-membership, an online membership alongside our standard membership. It's 30 bucks, which is about $2.50 a month, so not a ton of money. You get all the benefits of membership of the ABA, except that you receive the publications online rather than in the mail. So if you enjoy you know, reading magazines on a tablet or on your laptop, you know, this is a good option for you. You can, you can help us out without spending a ton of money and look at you, you're, you're already listening to a podcast, so you're, you're already pretty internet savvy. Uh, they also make great gifts for yourself or a birding friend. Just wanted to throw that out there. You can get more information at aba.org slash e-member. Uh, that's all I have to say on that. Uh, the rest of this episode will consist of a conversation that I had with my colleagues, Ted Floyd and Greg Neese about winter birding. We talk clothes, we talk strategy, we talk CBCs, that's Christmas bird counts, to the uninitiated. All that after a special bonus rare bird focus. This is your rare bird focus for the middle part of December 2018. I know I said I wasn't going to do this the last time around, but I kicked the can down the road on this episode long enough that there were a few birds that I could mention. Yeah, score one for procrastination, I guess. We'll start with a rare thrush on the western part of the continent. British Columbia's second record of field fare was discovered on December 16th in Salmon River, British Columbia. That was in the south central part of the province. Uh, it was found on a Christmas bird count. Great time of year to find unusual birds. Uh, these nomadic thrushes turn up in the ABA area from time to time, usually in Atlantic Canada. But there has been a spate of records in the interior west in the last decade or so, and I do I do think this part of BC counts as the interior west. In addition to this recent bird, there was a field fair in Saskatchewan earlier this year, as well as one in Montana in 2015, and of course BC's first record of field fair was in 2003. So you know, your mileage may vary on what counts as a spate of records. 
Uh, first records to note include a pink-footed goose in Weld County, Colorado, just north of Denver. Uh, fans of the movie version of The Big Year may remember that the Jack Black character and the Steve Martin character found a pink-footed goose in Colorado at the end of that movie. And how we all laughed at the inaccuracy. Uh, who's laughing now? Uh, this species has been increasing in the northeast part of the aviary in recent years, though Colorado is pretty out there. Uh, notably, there is an unaccepted record of this species from Nebraska that may deserve another look in light of this Colorado bird. And in Indiana, a great kiskadee was seen in Noble County. This is a pretty wild record, too, but this is not the only great kiskadee in the Great Lakes area this year. An individual of this species was seen in Ontario this past summer. That bird disappeared for a few months before being rediscovered not far from its initial location just last month. Uh, there was also one in South Carolina this year. You might also remember a record from South Dakota not that long ago. You might be looking at a new pattern of vagrancy. That would be pretty cool. This is a, definitely a flashy bird. This is just a little bit of the rarity landscape in the ABA area for this period. For all of the rare bird news, go to the ABA blog every Friday or join the ABA Rare Bird Alert Facebook group at facebook.com slash groups slash ABA Rare. We're also on Twitter at ABA Bird Alert. Days are short, winter is at or near its coldest, and it's easy to just suspend birding for a few months and wait for spring, but that would be missing out on some truly great birding experiences, including Christmas bird counts, which many birders consider to be a highlight of their year. We are currently in the middle of the CBC season, and I have with me a panel of birders, two birders, who are no strangers to winter weather conditions, uh, web developer Greg Neese of Chicago, Illinois, they don't call it the Windy City for nothing. And uh, birding editor Ted Floyd of Boulder, Colorado, just over one mile in elevation. We are going to talk about winter birding. We're going to talk about Christmas bird counts. Welcome to both of you. Thank you, Nate. You, you both live in places where, you know, if you want to bird for at least half the year, you have to get comfortable with cold and in several cases, wind. Uh, what, does, what does birding in the winter mean to each of you? Well, Nate, you sort of stole my thunder, or maybe oh, no. stole my stole my thunder snow there in your <laughs> uh, comment about the, uh, the the long, cold, hard winters here in Boulder, right in the, uh, the foothill foothills of the Rocky Mountains. But so, so to me, winter birding uh, around my home here in Boulder, but in all, all the other places I've lived, which have been pretty cold in the winters as well, in uh, New York and Massachusetts, and even northern Nevada was surprisingly cold during the winter months. I think has um always been very uh, sort of satisfying to me. There, there just are so many birds in the winter. And even if we were conducting this conversation much farther north and I don't know, you know, Alaska or even the coast of Greenland or somewhere, the southern coast, there would be birds to find. So mm -hmm. maybe sort of the, uh, the trite answer to your question would be that I'm, I'm just constantly in, in awe after all these decades of winter birding of just how many birds there are to be found in, in the winter. Um, while we're recording this right now, even through my closed window, because the temperature's under freezing outside, I can barely make out the, uh, the tootling of a, uh, of a Townsend solitaire. It must be fairly close to the window. And then I hear the, uh, the din of cackling geese. Uh, there are thousands of them at a pond down the road. So there's something to be very gratifying about being here in the the frigid, frozen north, as you said, more than a mile above sea level. And outside, you know, through my locked up, closed, shuttered window, I can hear <laughs> birds. Well, you know, Ted, I, um, I lived in Colorado for a couple of years and uh, spent a couple of winters there on the western slope. And 
winter in the Rocky Mountains is spectacular. It's it's beautiful. It's fun. Winter in Chicago is dismal and um <laughs> it's it's it, it, it'll take the life right out of you and um birding in in Chicago in the winter is is well I've got a you're talking about towns and solitaires and and uh, cackling geese out your window I have a motorcycle gang of house sparrows that I thought chase, you were going to say a motorcycle gang <laughs> that chase yeah either one yeah, <laughs> yeah both that the motorcycle <laughs> gang of house sparrows chases my single downy woodpecker off the suet constantly <laughs> and that's <laughs> yeah Chicago birding in the winter time it, it takes a lot to get up and get out because it's it's rarely that beautiful, crisp 32 degrees with blue skies and puffy clouds and snow. That happens extremely rarely. Usually it's like a a 33 degree mix of slop and gray leaden skies that touch your head. And but having said all that, um the birding can be can be really interesting uh, in the Great Lakes, and we get a a neat mixture of um, some overshoots and some some things that kind of stick around, and then winter birds from further north. So it can be it can be a lot of fun despite the nastiness of the weather. Hey Greg, since you um paid homage to Colorado, I need to just briefly reflect on my only sustained winter birding experience ever in Chicago. And actually, it was with you. And, and, and we had a nice day. We had a marvelous day. And this this is the short anecdote I want to share with you. It's the most uh, astonishing triptych in all of my birding experience. <laughs> we, I saw the following in immediate succession without any interruption from house sparrows or any other birds. Hoary redpole, followed immediately by snowy owl, followed immediately by <laughs> monk parakeet. That has got to be the coolest <laughs> triumvirate of birds. Again, no house sparrows yeah. in the interim, no starlings, no <laughs> gulls, but hoary red pole to snowy owl to monk parakeet. And I doubt I will ever be able to replicate that. <laughs> that particular spot, as long as hoary red pole is uh, a species, in that particular spot at Wolf Lake on the south side of Chicago, that's actually, you could you could probably do that. Three out of five winters. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm, I'm listening to you guys talk about uh, birding in the cold. Where I live in the southeast, you know, I am I am where all the birds come to to get away from the cold. Right. Uh, so in, in my mind, uh, winter is always the season of uh, abundance. Uh, we especially in the eastern part of my state, where there are thousands of waterfowl in these large congregations at National Wildlife Refuge, and that that's what I think of in winter. Uh, the birding along the coast can be actually very good in the winter as well, uh, if for no other reason, because you often get kind of lingering uh, warm weather birds as well where I am, which is kind of kind of a, a neat novelty. Yeah. Well, the only time I've been to the Carolinas um, was midwinter, and um, it was my first you know, first time to that part of the, the mid-Atlantic and, and middle of winter. I was shocked at just the number of towhees and house, uh, not house sparrows, um, <laughs> fox sparrows and you know, birds, yeah. birds that are here. Why you find it? Sure. Yeah. You find a towhee in December, and it's it's outstanding. Um, and, yeah, towhees, great everywhere. Yeah. One of those sort of things that double fruit eating birds, because we have so many, especially on the coast, a lot of uh, wax myrtle, uh, a lot of lot of food for them. Hey Nate, this will be a bit of a Colorado homerism here, but I uh, I have to point out that even though we are 
more than a thousand miles from the nearest marine conditions in landlocked Colorado. Some of our Christmas counts put up totals that I think would surprise a lot of uh, yeah. couples. So uh, the boulder count here routinely hits right around 110 species. Uh, and then to our south, although not that far south in Pueblo, uh, they've topped out above 125. And again, we don't That's have remarkable. the benefit. Yeah, we don't. We don't have a crashing ocean waves, and and typically our counts are you know conducted in sub freezing temperatures. And um, I guess we don't quite have the huge numbers of let's say a uh, brant that you probably do, or maybe gannets offshore. But uh, we number into the tens, and on some counts, hundreds of thousands of, of waterfowl. Uh, yeah, maybe tackling in Canada geese, but but a lot of other ones as well. I birded uh, I birded Cherry Creek, which is not too far from Denver, in the winter. Uh, a surprising number of birds for you know a, a, a reservoir in the mountains. Yeah, uh, reservoirs reservoirs definitely seem to be the one of the keys of winter birding. You know, uh, I wanted to ask you how do you guys prepare, not just in terms of you know what you're wearing, but what are you going out to look for? I'm hearing reservoirs a lot. I'm hearing water, even though in Colorado not that much. Um, what do you guys? When you think I'm going to go out and do some winter birding, what what does winter birding look like to you? Well, here it depends on the weather. I mean, the Great Lakes, mm -hmm. it depends, and not on the weather, it depends on the winter. Um, and especially lately, our winters have been, the, as I've said for the last two years or more, the, the key word to remember is oscillation. Uh, our weather in the winter has been swinging wildly from very cold to exceptionally warm and trending warmer and warmer each year. So, mm -hmm. You know, when I was a kid, going on the Christmas count meant bundling up like the the little the little boy in the Christmas story movie where he can barely <laughs> move, you know, and you're standing out there looking, counting chickadees. And now it's kind of like getting ready to go birding in Seattle. You know, it's just it's it's sloppy, wet, cold rain, but then it can change on a dime and and drop twenty degrees, and all that freezes. So, having said all that. The uh, the key to birding around here in the wintertime is water. If it's really cold and everything's frozen up, uh, we have a few channels, um, sanitary and ship canals, where there's warm water outflows, and those can be just spectacular, where you get right up on top of things like white-winged scoter, um, black scoter, or birds that you know are typically way out in the lake. When the lake is frozen, they come into those little... little uh, the, the Chicago River and some of the other rivers. Water is great. Um, I, I'll say that in, in Colorado, and I'm thinking in particular of the three Christmas counts on which I'm more or less a regular, uh, two of them very much involve water. Uh, one of them is the, the Denver Urban Christmas Count. And Greg, you mentioned Cherry Creek. So I'm on the extreme northern extent of the count that includes Cherry Creek. Cherry Creek's in the south, and the area that I do is 15 miles to the north, all along the Platte River. And I don't think I'm more than 25 feet from water the whole day. Uh, right. Another spot that I do a little farther south, uh, down south of Colorado Springs, is the Fountain Creek Christmas bird count. And due to the uh, good graces of the compiler, I get really the uh, probably the, the best habitat in the area, which is a very extensive uh, freshwater marsh in connection with uh, sewage treatment. So the cattails uh, stay open, and it's just a great place to find things like uh, swamp sparrow, marsh wren, uh, Virginia rail, birds like that. But I also want to talk about the... Uh, the third rail of Christmas bird counts, which would be a bird feeders. <laughs> and uh, in the Boulder Christmas bird count, the sector that I'm assigned to most years is in a residential section of the uh, sort of southwestern part of Boulder. And 
bird feeders there are fantastically productive. And you know, I know that uh, there are all sorts of various ethical and philosophical and emotional directions that we could go with bird feeding, but uh, feeding stations are a, a big deal. And I can't help but note that I've even seen um, Mandarin duck on the Boulder Christmas. <laughs> yeah, don't tell the New York uh, Times. They'll be on you. <laughs> it's, and it's the same here. I mean, you know, the scouting, uh, a big a big part of the scouting for our Christmas counts, I do, uh, the one that I do the most is the Lyle CBC, which is now celebrating, I think it was just two years ago, it celebrated its 100th count. It's the oldest one in Illinois for certain. It's stringing together feeders and talking to the homeowners and telling them, you know, in a lot of cases, they're feeder watchers for us. Um, but if they're not, we'll go up, you know, the week before and tell them, hey, we're running the bird count. We're going to be stopping to look at your feeder two or three times during the day. Is that okay? It almost always is. Uh, and then and then other homeowners who have ponds, you know, in their subdivisions, just letting them know that we're going to be stopping there and looking at the ducks and looking at things. But yeah, the the man-made bird attractants like feeders are extremely important. Yeah, I, I mean, that is one of the advantages of, of doing a, a group, a territory in your local CBC, or whatever CBC you do, from year to year to year to year, because you end up with that sort of institutional knowledge, you sort of know what feeders are likely to be filled on the day of the count, what feeders you can avoid, what neighborhoods are worth spending a lot of time in versus those you can just blow right on by. You you mentioned that you end up with these sort of relationships that people have with with the with the bird feeders, and and do you do you, do you go and encourage them to have their make sure that their seed is out on the day of the day of the count? Oh, absolutely, and in some cases we'll even bring them. We'll bring them gifts of you know bags of seed. We'll bring them like a 20, <laughs> 20 pound bag of seed. Yeah, use this on this day <laughs> just to make sure that it's filled. Yeah. You know, for the few days before and and on the count day. Uh, you know, and another and another part of it too. Uh, and again, you know, Chicago area is, is is one of the largest urban areas in the world, and it's uh, y- y- there's very few places where you can bird and not run into people. You know, scouting out owl territories is one thing. I can't tell you how many times we've been tailed by the cops while we're scouting out owl territories at night. <laughs> um, and especially finding, you know, where the saw what owls are because they typically like mm-hmm. to be near subdivisions because there's a lot of mice. What, what sort of things do you wear on a given day? You, you sort of hinted around that, uh, how you dress up like, uh, like the kid in, in the Christmas story with the, you know, the down anorak down here where I live, where the, where you could have a Christmas count one year where it is you know, 15 degrees high during the day. And the next year you're looking at a 65 degree day. It's really hard to sort of predict it, but we do sort of start cold and, and warm up pretty quickly. And so layering is sort of the key. How, how do you guys in more cold climbs approach a day of birding in the winter from a clothing standpoint? I'll take a first stab at that. Um, Greg mentioned being all bundled up as the the little kid in the, the Christmas story or Christmas pageant or whatever it was. And I have to say that for about my first, oh, 40 something years on this earth, I I wasn't that kid. I just was uh, famously sort of notoriously impervious to the cold. (laughs) But then I hit the 40s and uh, something slowed down or changed. And actually uh, where this all came to a head for me, I have to go back to Chicago here, was that a winter birding expedition with uh, with Greg and Amar and others? It was a uh, it was Valentine's Day. It was during their uh, what's that event the called, Greg? The golf frolic. The golf frolic. And I think that the high temperature 
at that marina that day was about minus three with sustained winds out of the north at about 25 miles per hour. (laughs) And I was out there trying to, you know, squint through my teary eyes at those third cycle Bayer's goals. Um, Amara Yash took pity on me and and gave me a a, a real jacket. And the thing was like one of those uh, lead coats that you wear for a chest (laughs) x-ray. And I remember I said to myself on the plane ride home, I'm going to get myself one of those. And in fact, I, I, I own one now. And I own real boots uh, for the first yeah. time in my life, and they really have made a difference for me. I, you know, and I know everybody likes their little lightweight Patagonia or LL Bean downs, but nothing beats one of those Ayash um, issue uh, lead coats and, and your know, boots that weigh about eight pounds a piece. Um, one other thing I'll say, and I think this has been sort of true of me all the time, but even especially as I get older, is that um. Staying active, and I mean really active, like actually running around from time to time Mm -hmm. can be a big benefit. Um, There have been some times when I've been out, especially recently, let's say for six hours, and I know I'm going to be out for another six hours, and just like going into a 12 or 13-minute run um, can... (laughs) <laughs> well, yeah, sorry, but but but, I mean, but but consider the alternative. You trudge back to trudge back to the car and warm up the car yeah. and go inside. I mean, you've lost like an hour and a half when you're doing that. Whereas the, I'm not sure you're probably just cackling at the spectacle of me running in my big boots and jacket through the snow. Well, you've already minutes. established that they're enormous. <laughs> I'm just laughing at the. I'm just laughing at the. At the that's such a Colorado thing to do. Oh, yeah, very bolder. <laughs> no, here, here we stand like monoliths with our scopes and and scan the thousands of gulls without moving it's like for three hours. Midwestern stoicism. Yeah, <laughs> you know, the keys are uh, feet, hands, and head, yep, and your neck. Yeah, and if you keep your feet warm and just like get the biggest, warmest boots, I use these um, uh, North Face McMurdo boots and i have a north face mcmurdo parka um and uh, named after mcmurdo station uh in antarctica fingerless gloves and then mittens to put over them because most of the time you need your fingers out you know you got to grab pictures of all the iceland gulls you can you you can't keep your hands on the metal scope or camera for very long so you you've got mittens to throw over that to keep them warm hats you know, doesn't matter what it is, as long as it fits well and you're happy with it and it keeps your head warm. But one thing that a lot of people overlook is the neck. And neck gaiters are key. They're they're just they they make they make it just so much more pleasant. Well, Greg, since I've already invested in uh, eight pound boots and a lead weight of a jacket, <laughs> maybe I'll go get a, a neck gaiter for this year's Christmas counts. That that, that actually would be a new one for me. Well, I always build out. I have a. I, I did invest in a nice set of long underwear, and that has made an enormous amount of difference when I've been out in, in sort of difficult conditions. Um, you know, relatively speaking, I, I live in the southeast, but um, I have I have birded in colder places like coastal Massachusetts and whatnot. But uh, yeah, long underwear, building out out to a down jacket and gloves. You say gloves and a hat that covers my neck. I usually have a like a big wool hat with the thing over the ears. Yeah, not doing any favors to the uh, reputation of birders as being, uh, you know, not very fashionable, but uh, <laughs> it does do the job. You know those, you know, and another thing when it's, for when it's not, you know, brutally, brutally cold, but it's, it's cold enough. Um, and I'm going to say for me here in Chicago, we're looking at like, 32 to 25 degrees, you know, somewhere in that mm-hmm. range in the, in the twenties, but not, you know, it going down to 10 where it's, you know, getting brutal. 
you know those little black earmuffs that uh, business people wear with their suits? That, <laughs> so they don't mess their hair up? Yeah. Yeah, they fold up into like a little round little disc. Those things are great because oh. they, they stop the wind from freezing your ears, but you can hear through them. So yeah, for, for birding, they're really, they're really nice. Mm. They cost like you know five bucks. All right, so I'm gonna go. I'm gonna go back, and we'll we'll talk about Christmas bird counts a little bit uh, when this podcast is published. Uh, it will be sort of in the middle of the Christmas bird count season. Um, a lot of people sort of are introduced to birding through Christmas bird counts. You know, you, you all are, are veterans of many CBCs. You know, what advice would you give to people who are perhaps doing their first Christmas bird count this year? Look at and count every bird. <laughs> Go through that little patch of woods or or whatever that you don't think has anything, but go through it anyway. And so if you're, you know, you're assigned a territory, really just dig into that territory and bird the daylights out of it. Yeah, it's it's that's that's how I do it. So I'll address this from more of sort of a, a human angle. And I would say that assuming that your compiler is at all reasonable, and I think the vast majority of them are, see if you can um, be matched to a group that um, Mm -hmm. matches your own interests. And I'll I'll just briefly sort of uh, mention how the character quality of the three Christmas counts that I do are actually very, very different. So the uh, the Boulder Christmas count uh, involves working a fairly, I'll say easy, for want of a better word, sector, um, where there is the opportunity to go indoors. And we actually have three start times. There's the uh, really early start, which is usually just me and one other person, uh, and then a uh, more leisurely start at around 9 a.m. And then we actually have a start time uh, for the, the laggards who come in at around lunch at 11.30. And for somebody who just wants to get an afternoon of birding with us, that's a great way to do it. Uh, then I would contrast that with the Fountain Creek Christmas count, which uh, has always been very entertaining for me. It's sort of this uh, annual excuse for truancy for the Boulder Valley School District. I usually take a bunch of teenagers down with me. My son is always good for that. Any excuse to get out of school, because it was held during a school day, I, I ought to mention that. And um, that's a count where just imagine sort of every kind of off-color teenage <laughs> joke in one sort of aging middle-aged guy you know traipsing through marshes and swamps and you know i i would not recommend that for somebody of a certain sensitivity but if you like sort of bathroom humor and the uh, the speed and, and and pace of uh 14 and 15 and 16 year olds and they're as i said they're aging mentor that's, that's a good one <laughs> so, okay good and, and then finally for uh, if you're just if you really want to go all out or all in maybe i should say sort of the way i think that greg has been describing things you know, i would recommend that you do the uh, the denver urban count with me so that's one where we meet pretty much at first light and just walk for miles up and down the platte river so it's it's a pretty intense one i wouldn't really recommend that one for a beginner but if you're new to the area and you've been a birder for a while and you just really want to learn your way around the birds and birders and avifauna of denver that would be the uh, the count to do so just consider that most christmas bird counts have multiple sectors and that they are pretty variable and that uh, if you want easy going you know some counts are really good for that and if you want intense others are like that and if you want bathroom humor and teenage males and actually some teenage females too there's a count for that well in some counts you know are are as much social events as they are anything else and and it's all there's really no wrong way to do it or right way to do it um but you know you were talking about the experience of a christmas count if if you want the the experience of a christmas count like no other the Chicago lakefront count on January 1st with Joel Greenberg is the way to go. 
Another really famous count in uh, Chicago, one that I would love to do, and I've only heard of, and Greg, maybe you can fill us in on this, but it's, it's a Christmas count that's actually held on Christmas Day. And I, I'm, I'm right about that. Yeah, yes? Oh, yes, there is. It's the uh, it's the Waukegan count is on Christmas Day. Okay. And that's and that's also and that's also Joel yeah. Greenberg. And, and the way that that count has been described to me, I, I think it's absolutely charming, is that it's sort of the count for uh, pagans and heathens and Muslims <laughs> and Jews and other non-worshippers. That's absolutely fine with me. Uh, there are lots of other days to do the uh, the Christmas bird count, but the the idea of actually doing the Christmas count on <laughs> Christmas Day is just really uh, kind of appealing to me. I could go home later and open up the presents, I suppose. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, and I may well be mistaken, if I am, somebody will write a comment to this, I'm sure, uh, to the ABA. But weren't the original Christmas counts, like the ones by Frank Chapman hundred almost 120 years ago, conducted on Christmas morning? And I, I may have that wrong, but I think the, the Christmas I believe I believe that is correct. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah because there was the tradition of the, the Christmas the shoot essentially right, right. Um, yeah but, but no i've always been sort of uh, enamored of that uh that christmas day count in the uh in the chicago area i but i i think i have done that count once i mean, i've done every count around chicago but yeah the uh the ones between christmas day and new year's are are a lot of fun <laughs> yeah uh, in the in the eastern part of north carolina there is uh, a lot of people that go out for an entire week out there and do a series of christmas counts one right after another at the big wildlife refuges uh, culminating in the hatteras christmas bird count which often interestingly enough has a pelagic component like there's a like sometimes brian pattison will take a couple of people out and they'll just like work the edges of the count uh offshore to see if they can you know, turn up Elsids or uh, or Fulmar or that, anything like that. It's, that it's sounds like really a lot neat. of fun. Yeah, yeah. And at least in, in decades past, um, that sort of a Christmas circuit or whatever you want to call it attracted out of staters. I remember. Yeah, it does. Yeah, it, it attracts a lot of birders from the you know, as far north as Philadelphia. I had a friend um, up in State College, which is technically north of the state uh, of Philadelphia, uh, Randy Harrison, back in the uh, the mid nineties, who. Uh, just needed to get his fix of daily Christmas bird counts, and he would just disappear from us uh, for uh, <laughs> weeks, actually, every year right around Christmas, just to do a, a Christmas count a day, uh, basically, in, in North Carolina. And I think he snuck up into Virginia a couple of times um, as well during yeah. that period. Yeah, a lot of those coastal counts, uh, people have been doing it for a very long time. Now, I realize we're, we're kind of running out of rope here, but the one thing we haven't talked about as far as Christmas counts go is the count dinner? I was just going to mention that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, the countdown. Um, I've, I've done. I've done CBCs where there is a countdown and where there is not a countdown, and I have to say, I enjoy the former way more because I just enjoy getting together with people who have shared the experience of being out, you know, in in the winter landscape for however many hours and coming back together and there's always the person that finds something good that's kind of keeping their cards to their vest and then you kind of right. do the the countdown where everyone goes around and announces their numbers i mean that's that's just so much fun uh the, the community part of the christmas bird count it really makes that uh makes the whole experience a great one yeah i, I totally agree and I, i'll share with you all briefly sort of my my favorite compilation uh anecdote from not all that long ago so as you might expect, this is the Christmas count that involves the, the bathroom humor and, and, and teenagers. Uh, the, the, the Boulder and the Denver Urban Christmas counts have very sort of ritualized and properly rehearsed and, and very sort of formal uh, compilations. And, and by the way, kudos to the compilers, uh, Bill Schmoker and um, Hugh Kingery, who both pulled that off. It's incredible to be still on your A game after all of those hours of birding and, and mm -hmm. days and weeks of preparation. That said, um, 
the the Fountain Creek Christmas count, which you probably already sensed from our conversation today, is a fairly casual count. And the uh, the compiler, who's a wonderful fellow, don't get me wrong, and no names will be named here, but you can talk to me afterwards if you want to figure out who it is, um, sometimes has to work on the day of the <laughs> Fountain Creek Christmas count and can't come counting with us. But uh, he does at least give us the code to get into the building, except for the time a year ago when he forgot to give us the code to get into the building. So we conducted our compilation uh, outside uh, in the cold. We do this, by the way, every <laughs> day because folks want to, it's a very casual count. They want to know uh, what was found during the morning so they can go out in the afternoon and and find it. So so there we were just out. And it was actually a fairly nice day, although it was it was cold. It was cold, but sunny. Um, we didn't even get to go inside for the compilation. We had our Subway sandwiches and our bags of chips and, <laughs> beers and beer and energy drinks and whatever else people brought to the uh, to the uh, quasi compilation. I just really um, enjoyed the uh, sort of the, the camaraderie of the, the group. The, uh, we call them the El Paso Mafia for, for El Paso County, which is where that, that count is, is held. It's just a wonderfully sort of a uh, diverse and colorful group of people who, except for the fact that their burgers would have nothing in common with one another. And uh, there we were just sort of hanging out amid the, the pinion pines and the, and the snow drifts and trying to figure out um, if anybody would get a key to the men's room or the women's room and uh, what birds we had seen. See, now on the opposite end of that, uh, the, the count that I mentioned earlier, the uh, Chicago Ornithological Society, Lyle CBC, uh, that one is compiled by Jeffrey Williamson, and who's an NAB, uh, who is one of the NAB compilers. It's at a restaurant. We take over a restaurant, and we go around, as you were describing, Nate, uh, but he's got a PowerPoint presentation with an embedded spreadsheet. And we go down, you know, code one birds, uh, area one, area two, area three, all the way through area six. Everybody gives their numbers. Uh, we run down the checklist. And then by the time you get done, uh, you get down to the rare birds. You're also, you also have all these totals so that at the end you can see how you've done compared to past years. Oh, nice. Putting the rare birds at the end, that uh, shows a real flair for the dramatic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Because when, when, we, when you're done, when it's all done and, and there's nothing else on the, on the checklist as it exists, you know, then it's like, okay, does anybody have a new yeah. bird for this count? And there almost always is. Yeah. So, Greg, I just have to say that um, there is one other count, at least one other count exactly like that. And uh, Bill, Bill Schmoker, another uh, tech guy, does precisely that sort of a uh, high tech countdown from the bird scene every year to the bird scene, you know, five years, one year, zero years uh, and uh, and so forth. So there's there's there's, a, there's precedent for that out of here in Boulder. Hey, I have to ask you a question. I'm sort of putting myself in the spot here. But what's the uh, tell me about the restaurant in Chicago that you all go to? Um, it, it changes. It's usually a pizza restaurant. Okay, that's it, all I had to hear. Okay. So it's a pizza <laughs> restaurant in, um, in, in Chicago. In Boulder, of course, will be in an Indian restaurant. <laughs> of course. Of we course. Hear, we, I've done them at a Mexican restaurant. So to each their own. Thanks so much, guys. I hope that everyone listening has a great holiday season. Merry Christmas, Bird Count. Happy New Year list to all. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. Thank you. See you later. Always a pleasure. The American Birding Podcast is brought to you by the American Birding Association. I mentioned this at the top, but I'm going to mention it again. The ABA is in the middle of our end of year appeal. If you enjoy this podcast and any of the other free resources that the ABA provides, throw us a few bucks. It helps us keep this stuff going. Once again, that's aba.org slash give. 
If you're feeling especially generous, head over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts and leave us a rating or review. Your comments help us make this podcast better and it helps people find us. Uh, Think of it as a holiday gift to me. Thanks for that. I have some extra year-end thank yous to add various people who have helped us in various ways throughout the life of this podcast. Uh, Sean Marr and Bob Caputo of Samson Technologies, Josh Thompson, Rupert Neve Designs, and SE Electronics, uh, Matt Murray of Isotope. Uh, audio production and musical cues have been all year long, in the life of this podcast, courtesy of The Hangabouts, recorded at Earth Studio. You can find more Hangabouts music at hangabouts.com and hear them in the soundtrack of the Netflix film, Set It Up. Executive producer of the podcast and president of the ABA is Jeffrey Gordon. His CBC tip... He recommends that you cook your steaks to at least 145 degrees Fahrenheit to ensure food safety. I'm sorry, I see now that that CBC tip is from the Colorado Beef Council. Technical production is by John Lowry. For his CBC tip, he says, you know, unless you're really confident, you should not put yourself in the key defensive positions like catcher or first base when you're playing for the first time. You'll, if you miss a chance in these positions, it will only knock your confidence, and who needs that? Uh, <sighs> Sorry, that was for the Chesterfield Baseball Club. Additional help comes from David Hartley and Greg Neese. They both encourage you to have your battery terminal checked regularly, especially if you frequently drive on bumpy roads to ensure that it's tightly and properly positioned in the mounting bracket. And I, I, I see now that that CBC tip is uh, for car battery chargers. You can find us online at aba.org, on Facebook at facebook.com slash birders, and on Twitter at ABA. Did you ever wonder how the Canadian Broadcasting Corporation feels this time of year? They just want to reflect Canadian identity and promote democracy and support social and economic innovation throughout Canada. And people keep asking them what time they should meet up to go owling. I think if anyone understands, we at the ABA... Not the lawyer group, not the basketball group, not the bull mastiff group, not the Arabian horse breeding group, uh, not the bakers or the beverage sellers or the um, booksellers. I think we understand. Questions and comments can come to me at podcast.aba.org. I'm Nitswick. Thanks for listening. Till next time. See you in 2019.